Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and today we're talking with Thane Rosenbaum about his book, Payback, The Case for Revenge. This is a very controversial book. I highly recommend that you read it. It says things that you probably will not read anywhere else, and some of which you may uh, disagree with. But I found many of the arguments in the book and the underlying premise of the book very, very convincing myself. Welcome to the show, Thane. Thank you, Marshall, for having me on, inviting me to your podcast. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. My pleasure. So maybe you could begin the interview by um, telling us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm, uh, I was born in New York City. Uh, my parents were Holocaust survivors, um, and they retired to Miami Beach, Florida, which is a very unusual retirement for elderly Jews. <laughs> and uh, and and then I I finished my high school era uh, there and uh, eventually went to graduate school and law school and returned to uh, New York City and worked as a Wall Street lawyer at one of the large firms um, and I I think I just always knew that I was a writer of sorts or wanted to be it but mostly a fiction writer. So my first three books were works of fiction, and but that had very much the Holocaust, or more importantly, the post-Holocaust world very much mm-hmm. in the backdrop. Um, and so those books were novels. Was a, one was a collection of stories uh, called a, a, a novel in stories, and it was the title was Elijah Visible. And then I uh, wrote a novel, Secondhand Smoke, and then the third one was The Golems of Gotham, and I ended up calling that my post-Holocaust uh, trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they, though that was my fictional life, was born as a writer through that. And then I, I'm also a, I left the law in order to write fiction, and then I sort of backtracked and wound up becoming a law professor mm-hmm. at Fordham Law School. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I decided that I also had a nonfiction voice, um, I was writing essays for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and L.A. Times and reviewing books, and I realized that I really liked essays and I liked uh, argumentative writing. Uh, and so I wrote a book, The Myth of Moral Justice, um, which was very much a moral critique of the legal system, which you can imagine is not a very popular thing to mm-hmm. say, certainly with a million lawyers in the country, all of whom think the legal system is perfect as it is. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I, I'm, as a law professor also, to write such a book was another act of heresy. Uh, and so that was uh, widely reviewed, uh, but very mixed reviews, uh, in part because there was just a lot of criticism from bar associations prosecutors offices and law firms uh the law did the legal system does not look fair well in the myth of moral justice in fact the subtitle is the uh, why the legal system fails to do what's right um and then i uh continued writing fiction and nonfiction. i wrote a young adult novel the stranger within sarah stein and then i wrote a book that's uh, uh edited anthology called law lit um from atticus finch to the practice a collection of great writing about the law because I've been teaching law and literature for a number of years, and I'm the director of a nonprofit, the Forum on Law, Culture, and Society, hmm. which is interested in the relationship between art and law. Uh, when fiction writers think about the law, what do they see? When movie makers think about the law, what do they see? And so that became sort of another part of my portfolio, is to be a person who can evaluate art about the law. So, in fact, I started writing a lot of reviews and essays, think pieces for places like the New York Times, uh, Wall Street Journal, about that connection, that intersection. And then the nonprofit was an opportunity to make some of this go live. So if you go on the website for the forum, it's forumonlawcultureandsociety.org, forumonlawcultureandsociety.org. You'll see 
the highlights from uh, some of our events. We have a, an annual film festival in which we feature um, six films about the law, followed by post-screening to guests, people who are usually artists or writers who are involved in the makings of the film. And we've had all sorts of interesting guests from President Clinton to Supreme Court Justice Sotomayor to Alec Baldwin, Sam Waterston, Richard Dreyfuss, uh, John Turturro, Ellie Wiesel. Uh, and so if you go on the website, you'll see that. And so then uh, there was another nonfiction book, and it became Payback, the case for revenge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you're a very busy man. I can see that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so tell us why you wrote Payback. Well, in a way, I think it's sort of a, a mirror image of the myth of moral justice, that earlier not a book about the legal system. That was very much a moral critique about how if you examine the legal system under moral criteria, it fails. Uh, it's not emotional enough. Uh, it doesn't give people a day in court. Uh, it doesn't give people an opportunity to speak to their grievances. Um, and, and, and sort of the dehumanizing dimensions of the legal system, the things that it does and doesn't do, and how it fails under moral scrutiny. Um, payback is another piece of that, because, you know, in the aftermath of the Enlightenment, uh, civilized man, in return for the payment of their tax dollars, uh, courthouses were erected, uh, court personnel were uh, implemented, and the idea was that human beings were no longer able to take self-help, to engage in taking justice into their own hands. The rule of man gave way to the rule of law. Um, but that concept, that social contract that resulted in that job that the legal system, that the state had now undertaken as the designated avenger, or more importantly, taking its own monopoly on revenge, if it's really a social contract, then the legal system should be held to account, uh, meaning that for, for centuries and millennia, uh, human beings handled disputes, resolved disputes privately, the private settlements of disputes, um, and they did it quite well, uh, despite what Gandhi said about a world going blind for an eye for an eye. That actually didn't happen. Mm-hmm. People were continued to see and people did not all wipe each other out because of blood feuds. It actually worked quite well. Uh, but if the legal system, if states decided that, the, that revenge was too messy and the tracking down costs were too costly and that the legal system wanted to handle it, the state itself, then it had to do it. And one of the things that I'm concerned about is that we really don't have a victim-centered legal system. Mm-hmm. And, and the world of revenge is very victim-centered, mm-hmm. where it's very emotional, it's very much based on the, on the spirit of an eye for an eye because someone has been lowered, devalued by some moral injury, and in order to reclaim their honor, they have to get even. Uh, but the legal system doesn't do that. Uh, we don't ever actually deliver proper payback. And this is a moral and emotional imperative, uh, and the legal system is actually quite casual about it. So one of the things I wanted to say is, well, here's another failure of the legal system. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do its job. It underpunishes. It shortchanges the victim. And in doing so, it has tremendous moral and emotional and spiritual consequences to people who walk around and saying there's no justice in the world. Mm-hmm. And I knew <clears throat> that revenge is a loaded term. You, you began your podcast and reminding your listeners and I knew that it's, you can't have an honest conversation about revenge in this country, frankly, most countries. And I thought, well, here's, you know, here's an interesting way to begin. And I, so there was a number of essays out there that I wrote over the last number of years. There was one in the New York Times. There was one in the Daily Beast. There was one in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, I think one in Huffington Post, somewhere else. 
is sort of what I would call batting practice on revenge. Various, <laughs> various essays. <laughs> I used to work in journalism. I know just what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, right. It was just that, you know, little or artist studies, right? When you make a painting, you, yeah. you do some studies. So I did, you know, four or five artist studies, uh, you know, about revenge in major newspapers and online magazines knowing that I was working on this book. Um, and, and all of them, I said the same thing. I said, you know, you, you can't really have an honest conversation about revenge and that we've been told that revenge is shameful, it's barbaric, it's a, it's a creature of our primitive past, but in fact, it's righteous and right and true, and that we should stop making these false distinctions between justice and revenge, because they're really the same. There's no justice unless victims feel avenged. Mm-hmm. Uh, and revenge is not just if it's disproportionate. You know, you don't get you don't get a moral pass on revenge if you take too much. Mm-hmm. If you go beyond an eye for an eye, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so that we should start seeing them as the same. And in order to see them in the same, we have to actually, if you see them the same, then you have to look at the victim at the end of each of these criminal trials and say, how do you feel? Do you feel avenged? And if since victims don't feel avenged, then we have to admit that we're not actually uh, we're not actually providing proper payback, mm-hmm. well, and yeah, and ahead. we're not actually providing justice. Mm-hmm. We we call it justice because it, but it's a misnomer. It's a lie. It's only justice. It's administrative justice. It's what the law delivers. It doesn't. It's not. It's not based on whether it's truly just. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, I, I wanted to. I was about to break in there. I want to start the story from the very beginning and. Uh, one of the things I really liked about the book was that you bring in a certain amount of evolutionary psychology. That's uh, something that I've studied myself. And it's in that frame that you talk about why we, that is humans, uh, seem to want uh, to be avenged or want revenge so badly. Can you talk a little bit about that? I actually, yeah, I'm glad that you point that out. I actually think, you know, it's like, what's the journalism line buried the lead? Mm-hmm. You know, in in order to really make this, I don't do this, but in order to make the argument, I should probably just start off with the science, right, right. Marshall? Mm-hmm. Start off with the science. Say, look, you know, stop treating this as irrational, emotionally unhinged people. Let's just go straight to science. Scientists, neuroscientists all over the world, Austria, Germany, Switzerland, Princeton, New Jersey, Conduct, have conducted uh, experiments, neuroeconomic experiments, uh, basically hooking people up to uh, PET scans and MRIs machines, and have determined that we're hard, our brain circuitry is hardwired for fairness, justice, and retaliation. We cannot tolerate watching someone get away with cheating or committing a wrong. And even if we're watching it, it drives us so insane, literally, we are so lit up, our neurocircuitry is so lit up, that we will give something up of ourselves to make sure that just desserts takes place. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's actually the world of the altruistic punisher, mm-hmm. right? Batman, mm-hmm. you know, superheroes, Dexter, the person who's willing to undertake the duty to avenge, even though they have no personal investment in the matter. They have not been morally injured, but they take on that role, and we root for them. And by the way, we root for them in movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, re- if revenge is as, en- is as shameful as everyone tells us, uh, then why don't we walk out of revenge movies like Braveheart or Gladiator or True Grit? We should just walk out and protest. How dare they think that you can take justice into your own hands? Mm-hmm. So the evolutionary psychology is that it is, is very much uh, the science behind it is that human beings have always had this hardwired into us. Uh, a section of our brain lights up 
when we are exposed to unfairness and injustice, and a different section of our brain, the rewards pleasure section, uh, uh, lights up uh, when we are anticipating uh, retaliation. Mm-hmm. By the way, uh, Marshall, it's the very same sector of the brain that also lights up when we anticipate eating chocolate. <laughs> Which is really yeah. interesting because when you think about the great artists of our, you know, of the world, from Homer to Lord Byron to Shakespeare, whenever they said revenge is sweet or vengeance is sweet, they knew exactly what they meant because, in fact, it is a craving. It's something that mm-hmm. we crave, uh, and it's because we're it's hardwired into our, our our anatomy, and it's not true of the animal kingdom. You know, they don't believe in retaliation because it's due, mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's just, because mm-hmm. punishment is required. Yeah. Uh, and we do, and yeah. we and we should not be so casually trivialized uh, or dismissed when we insist that people are paid back uh, proportionate to their blameworthiness. Mm-hmm. I should add that these studies that you're talking about, uh, which were done in the last 25 years, I think, um, largely by economists, interestingly enough, are fascinating, um, and uh, they they really demonstrate empirically that we have this tendency toward um, not not only fairness, uh, but also this altruistic punishment. That's really the inter- interesting thing, because you would think it would be selected against, because you're actually uh, paying something for uh, to punish someone that did not involve you. So it really is strangely altruistic, and, and evolution is not supposed to work that way. So it's a very odd right. thing. Also, I should say that there are good evolutionary reasons for the fact that our psychologies are very attuned to matters of fairness because fairness is very important for cooperation. And, right. and we cooperate like birds fly. We do it right. really well. Um, and, and so, and without a notion of fairness, you, you really can't have any kind of exchange at all. So it makes perfect sense in an evolutionary way that we, we would be built like this. And also, I think the last thing to say is, you know, having studied this a little bit, that this desire for revenge is a human universal. We don't find cultures that don't have it. Exactly right. It, it is everywhere. Yeah. Every, every society has revenge stories, revenge narratives, they have revenge rituals. Uh, we are not alone. In fact, we're as a society we're the one of the worst practicers of it, because we're you know we're we're being told that everything has to be done through a legal system that fails to properly mm-hmm. avenge. But but the other thing that when, was you were talking about the the science of it, you know what we're always told is revenge is an irrational, unhinged business. But the neuroscience experiments tells you on the contrary, it's very rational. It's very cost-benefit analysis. You know, we're told only crazy people go off half-cocked to avenge. Simply not true. It's not even true in the movies. Mm-hmm. The Avenger spends a lot of time, sort of methodical, right? Think about, you know, Death Wish. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of time put into thinking it through. Um, so that even moral philosophers that have said, you know, the revenge is all irrational, it's sunk costs, you, you know, it's a waste of time, no rational person would do it. On the contrary, the interesting thing about the neuroeconomics uh, uh, experiments is to say that it, it introduces a different level of rationality, right, which is to say the altruistic person is doing it for even though he purportedly stands nothing to gain from it, so therefore it's irrational. On the other hand, restoring moral balance to the world is something we all benefit from, mm-hmm. you know, which is your point about cooperation. You know, we all need to know that there's some rules, mm-hmm. there's some guidelines, some standards. We all invested in that. We want to make sure that someone doesn't do the same thing to us. Right. Then that's, you know, really, it, that's really the demonstration effect, and that's the point. And that's the cooperation point. Yeah. By the way, I talk about it in the book. You know, we joke about this in movies, westerns, the, you know, the rounding up a posse, 
But think about what that meant. That meant that a bunch of people who were not in any way injured all get on their horses because they have to do this jointly. And <laughs> each, right? I mean, think about when you're the, the Marshall point you made before about cooperation. Just think about how crazy it is. Yeah. You know, you run around to the various ranches and farms, and everyone gets on their horses instead of saying, you know, no, I'm going to stay home tonight and hang out with my kids. You know, nobody does it. They round up a posse. Because they have to, because the wrongdoer must be reclaimed. He must be brought back. Something must be done. We simply won't ignore it. Um, and you know what happens in Westerns. The person that doesn't want to join the posse is ostracized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to participate in this, and you should want to participate in this. And, mm-hmm. and it's rational for you to do so. Mm-hmm. Shane. Now, there was an altruistic uh, punisher right there. Yeah, Shane. Exactly. Yeah, that's a classic one. one. Shane, come home. Right. The, uh, it's funny because uh, I, I sometimes have discussions, let's put it that way, with my wife about whether the kids should watch things like Batman and the Avengers and Iron Man and things like this. They, she says, what do they learn from this? And, and, and I asked them one day, and they said, we learn to help people. Yes. I love that. That's yeah, great. That's what, the, that's what my older my son said. We learn to help people, which basically yeah. means, you know, find malefactors and put them out of their misery. No, and that there's a moral universe. Yeah. You know, this is what I would say to your wife. Yeah. Uh, these movies, you know, you may, yes, if you get past all the loud noises. <laughs> yeah, boy, are they loud. So very loud. It, there's, a, there's a moral universe, and kids are introduced to the moral universe. Mm-hmm. Fundamental distinctions between right and wrong. Yep. And that the wrong needs to be righted, yep. and that this, the closing credits will not close before that is righted. I think that those are very powerful messages that mm-hmm. kids should know. That yeah. it's important in the schoolyard. It's important when kids are cheating in exams. Right? Yeah. You know, it all goes back to the same thing. These things are wrong in an absolute sense, and and they need to be avenged. They need to be. Res- we have to retaliate in mm-hmm. some way. Mm-hmm. So I can tell you, and you know, you might present this information in the book that for uh, century, literally millennia, until you know, roughly the 18th century, almost every culture believed that uh, this kind of satisfaction was due someone who had been wronged. That uh, a certain amount of uh, revenge or vengeance was appropriate. You know, it's all over. For example, the Old Testament. Let's, that's one yeah. example. But there are lots of examples, and and it was basically universal until the 18th century. What happened in the 18th century? Well, you know, you could make the, you know, it depends who you ask, right? <laughs> if you ask certain people, they'll say, um, revenge never worked. They'll say it was always a bad system. It always resulted in too much blood, and it led to blood feuds. And because of that, the government needed to step in. That's one view. I don't think that's what happened. I don't think the data supports that because, again, every then all all civilization would have been wiped out. Right? If that was really what was happening, that you know, if you really look at the evidence, it's tribes, families, kin, states. They all were exacting in how much revenge needed to be taken because if they knew that if they went one drop above it that would invite the retaliation, mm-hmm. that everyone could live as long as it was proportionate. That's what an eye for an eye means. It imposes the requirement of proportion. And everyone lived in fear of disproportion. So on the contrary, I don't think that it's that the societies went revenge berserk. I think what mostly happened is became what the enlightened philosophers believed an expanded role for the government. And among the many things that the government should do, right, building your bridges, clearing your roads, right, it should also, you know, police your streets and resolve your disputes. I mean, I think one way to look at it, it's a power grab. You know, states basically said, you contract with us. 
We'll take care of all these things. You used to do all these stuff. Now we'll handle it. You know, we'll even provide schools, right? So over time, governments picked up more and more responsibility under the social contract. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I think, yes, I do think that it can potentially is much, much cleaner, less messy, fewer transaction costs if you have one central authority dispensing punishment. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I'm sure there was a huge part of that. You know, that it's far less messy, it's more organized, controlled, there's more systematic, right? It's better. But it's not because human beings couldn't do it. It's just became a more efficient way to do it. And by the way, it avoids the Hamlet problem, which is not all Avengers are up to the task. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is a problem, right? It's a, par- it's a problem of being in art, right? I mean, the remake of the film True Grit, I thought they did a very nice job on it, was mm-hmm. it a few years ago, it's nominated for Academy Award. Um, you know, it's a fascinating novel. It's a fascinating story. You know, here's a, like a 13-year-old girl who ventures off on her own into the territories with a really crappy gun and some money to hire some, um, you know, a, a marshal to go track down the guy who killed her father. That guy is already gone. Uh, he's off now into the wilds, and the marshal in town doesn't want to do it. He's got to take care of the people in town, and he doesn't want to go off into the wilds to go chase after some guy. So she has to hire somebody of sufficient true grit who will do this with her. By the way, the first marshal tells her to go home, and mm-hmm. she says, I can't. Why? Because what kind of a daughter would do that, right? If she really loved her father, she has to make sure that he's properly remembered, and the best way to remember him is to make sure that his killer doesn't go unpunished. Um, so I do think that track down costs are not small. They were always large, and many people more hamlet related, which is they're not naturally good at taking revenge, and they'll stumble about for two acts in a Shakespearean play until they finally do it. But I'll tell you this, Marshall, they have to do it. Mm-hmm. That's what the play's about. They have to do this, this, this sucker play is not ending until Hamlet does what he's got to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think Hamlet's a good example of, you know, wouldn't it really be better if the government handled it? Because then it's in the job of vengeance. It's their part of their portfolio of responsibilities. It's not just bridges. It's not just streets. It's also justice. Mm-hmm. I, I said the 18th century, and we'll come back to it in a second, but I really should have said, and this is really background to the 18th century and 18th century Europe particularly, is um, the first, I think, thoroughgoing or the most influential attack on revenge was Christianity itself. Uh, Christians don't, well, uh, (laughs) the Christian texts, I don't know what Christians think, but the Christian texts uh, do not uh, look favorably upon... Upon revenge. I mean, uh, Jesus says lots of things. Yeah. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the the book of Matthew, turn the other cheek, is probably, you know, was the death knell (laughs) to revenge. You know, if if you're going to make that kind of a... Uh, that kind of a statement is pretty much going to be very confusing for people who were told an eye for an eye. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, it still is very confusing. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people. I was raised in the Lutheran Church, so there were certain things in the text that I didn't understand, and one of the things was, uh, you know, love your enemies, and it was explained to me that meant don't have any enemies. It's impossible to love your enemies because they're enemies, but uh, I I think that the interesting thing about those texts, uh, and, and I uh, is that they became a kind of a benchmark for morality, but that morality was completely unattainable if you look at what people actually did after Christ said or did not say those things. Because if you look at, for example, uh, medieval and early modern Europe, 
exactly. uh, you know, uh, revenge was built into the system. I mean, they, they had lists, you know, so if you took somebody's hand, it cost this much. Right. And, and, you know, they were, as you say, they were very careful Meticulous. to make things Meticulous. proportional. Yeah. yeah and, and yeah, right. And they didn't, I don't, you know, they, they, you know, people can be lots of different things at once. And these people were Christians. It's true, but they were not turning the other cheek. Look, Marshall, I've, you know, this has come up in the last month or so touring around with the book. I mean, one of the things I say is after 9-11, I don't remember. This is a Christian nation. Let's not forget. The majority of people here are yeah. Christian, and it was founded by Christians. I have no memory of a statement being made by Christians that said, uh, yes, this is what al-Qaeda and the Taliban did, but we will turn the other cheek. Yeah, no, I have no memory of that. Right. I, I, I don't. Now, I, I, and I think that one of the things I say in the book that I think, you know, among the many things that could offend people is, you know, people smugly, too casually speak in the name of Jesus, what Jesus would do, what Jesus would do. Really? Do we really know what Jesus would do on 9-12? Yeah. You know, Jesus never lived through that. Jesus has never had a child that was raped and killed. Mm-hmm. We, we don't know. We are all very casual and smug about what Jesus would do. And I, I don't know Christians that thought that the United States shouldn't retaliate against Afghanistan, or rather Al-Qaeda, or for that matter, Japan and Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so where, where is the book of Matthew there? If you, if you take the scripture literally, shouldn't we simply turn the other cheek? And the answer is, we don't, because it's morally unbearable to do so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing. I mean, somebody, I don't know who, some wit once said, uh, Christianity is a great religion, someone should try it. Um, (laughs) so um, so, you know i mean it really is hard to live you know if you have a servant on a mount i mean there's lots of things in those texts that make are very hard to do and 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 they have not been done for the most part no and also i'm not critical i I say what do people say to me what do you think a, a victim who can turn the other cheek i said good luck to him if he doesn't for whatever reason doesn't feel that he needs to be made even that his honor is immediately reclaimed simply by forgiving Look, the state may have a different issue of, look, there's still a debt owed to society. But if the victim literally says, I don't need to be avenged, I'm a really good Christian and I can forgive, and therefore I'm not living with the internal stain of the moral injury of being so devalued by another human being, good luck, that's great. Uh, by the way, I also say in the book, you know, people feel that they can be avenged if somebody provides a proper apology mm-hmm. and, and undertakes meaningful gestures of repair. That's also great. If the victim doesn't need to feel elevated through an eye for an eye, but something else, right, that somehow compensates him for the eye, some other manner of restitution, some other way of feeling even, you know, having the other side acknowledge, this is what I did to you and I feel horrible about it. Those things are very powerful and avenging. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea that you just walk away and pretend it didn't happen is morally unbearable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that we as a species don't do that very well. No, we don't do it very well. That's the, the, the data on that is in. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, we don't need to conduct any further tests of that one. Yeah. And so, by the way, I, yeah, that's right. No, we need no future scientific experiments. Yeah, no. By the way, Aristotle didn't conduct any experiments on this, but he was very clear. He said, you know, if you can't get up for having someone caused you moral injury, and that if you can't be show the anger, the necessary resentment that comes from that, that that's a moral defect. That mm-hmm. you should consider that a defect in your character. Mm-hmm. 
that's a pretty strong statement. Yep. I mean, by the way, it's almost as if Jesus and uh, and and uh, Aristotle are going head to head on this, yep. right? Yep. One of them is saying it, there's nothing to be there's no there's no virtue in walking in way saying I'm cool with this. You know, that is a that right. is, there's right. something deficient in you that you're okay with this. You know, maybe you want to go turn the other cheek, but that's not something you should walk around and be prideful about. Um, and I think, again, without him knowing the you know empirical studies, it's intuitively right. Yeah, no, I think it is intuitively. I think people in what we might call traditional societies and Muslim societies today would agree. Yeah, uh, yeah. So <laughs> that, that that's pretty clear. So let's come back to the 18th century because it, it seems at that point we we or just, I don't know who we is, but some section of Western civilization uh, tried to bring that. Uh, Christian notion of the wrongness of revenge into reality, and it was Cesar Beccaria, if I recall, yep, uh, and, and 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 punishment as such got a whole. Uh, you know, I, again, I'm kind of tipping my hand here, but there were a whole bunch of different. Uh, I'd call them rationales for the way they were setting things up. Right. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you raise that because it I, it's in a chapter in the book called "Why We Punish," and it's just asking the question: well, Why do you think we do this? Uh, Beccaria and some of the other enlightened philosophers said, you know, you don't punish for any other reason other than to provide a net societal benefit. It's like a cost-benefit analysis. Mm -hmm. You don't punish simply to punish. You punish because it makes us all better off. And that's where the utilitarian philosophers stepped in, right? They said, okay, there has to be some consequential outcome to punish. There's no other reason. So what are those things? Well, you know, you deter other people from committing crimes, right? You could rehabilitate the person so they can re-enter society. Um, and so you started to get these other ideas, other reasons to punish, aside from pure retribution, you know, beyond pure retributive, as if to say punishing just for the sake of punishing is not, is not human which is the exact opposite of what I would say. But they're saying you don't punish unless you can find a good outcome, a benefit that comes from this. By the way, another enlightened philosopher disagreed with this, of course, was Immanuel Kant. Kant, yeah. Uh, And Kant steps in and says, there's only one reason to punish. It's because it's deserved. And this is really the battle of wills. You have the utilitarians that say there has to be a really great consequence, otherwise there's no point. And you have what I would call the retributivists, the Kantians, who say, forget that. There's one, only one legitimate reason. The wrongdoer made a decision to do a wrong, and now he must be punished. By the way, Kant has this really great, um, I guess it's an aphorism or an anecdote. He says, he says if you, it's like the, what I call the last man on the island one, which is to say, if the world was coming to an end or you're the last person on the island, it's only you and an unpunished wrongdoer. You have to take him out before you leave. Otherwise, it's a blight on the moral mm-hmm. fabric of everyone that once lived here. That we're all going out, but we made sure that the last... Now you're saying, well, what's rational about that? There's nobody here. There's no point deterring anything. No, he can't possibly commit another crime. It doesn't matter if he's rehabilitated. There's nobody here for he to to re-welcome into society. Just let it go. And Khan says, no, you can't. Morally, you don't. It's a categorical imperative. Mm -hmm. You don't let anything go. So, yes, you have the enlightened philosophers of the 18th century, many of whom believe that that there's a social contract and that we punish only for our, all of our benefits. And then you have a much stricter retributivist idea, mm-hmm. which is that they desert is the only reason. 
it's deserved. And you don't have to twist yourself in knots about why we shouldn't punish or I don't feel comfortable about doing it or it's not, you know, human. It, the argument is the, the wrongdoer made that decision. It's not, not about you. By the way, this is what people who believe in capital punishment are able to tap into, right? They say, this has nothing to do with me. It's not, it's not about me being human or not human. I, he made that decision or she made that decision in taking another life. And she, she or he had to understand this is what would be forfeited. And I'm not going to sweat about it. I'm just going to recognize this has to be carried out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, there's an interesting line of historical thinking that says the philosophers of the 18th century and then in the 19th century when these reforms were made were providing reasons, but they were really rationales. And the thing that had happened is that people, these people specifically, simply grew to see the kinds of punishments which were uh, distributed in a retributive way were just sort of um, aesthetically uh, uh, unbearable. They could not, they thought that they were uncivilized. Well, but, you know, remember this, you know, you could blame this stuff on King Henry VIII, you know. These guys, most of whom were, you know, these were, you know, Locke, these are British people. Of course, Buckery is not, uh, and Rousseau is not. But they come from a world where the, you know, the world, the world of cruel and unusual punishments, right? The world, by the way, that is really, you know, beyond, you know, it's, it, those are not proportionate, right? Where you, you know, impale people, mm-hmm. you, you gorge them so that their, you know, their entrails pour out, you burn them at the stake. You know, they're responding to that. They're seeing, you know, the, the, um, that you need a government to come in because the kings are sadistic. Right. You know, the monarchs are sadistic. So they, they just simply didn't believe. They came from a world where this is what punishment looked like. By the way, the biblical people did it better than the medieval people. <laughs> you know, the medieval people, we did what, you know, what Torquemada did. We tortured mm-hmm. people. So let's not forget that that's what Bacaria is. That's what that they're really worried about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, they, I think they, that's right. Yeah, I think they, they see They see the grotesqueness of punishment. If punishment was just really carried out in the more meticulous way that you mentioned before, where there was exactitude and there was a way of truly trying to find the proper proportion and compensation, I don't think they would have as strong an argument. Their argument was strengthened by sadistic monarchs that were burning people at the stake, Joan of Arc, right? We know this stuff, you know. I'm I'm actually not articulating correctly the various things that I know that, you know, King Henry was good at. But, you know, literally cutting people open and just pulling their organs out. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that's what they were observing and saying, you know, no, that's not human. We really need to take it away from those people where there's the beheadings. Forget all that. We're going to come up with another way to punish, and let's come up with an enlightened way to punish. There's got to be a reason to punish, and it's got to be valuable to all of us. Right. But, I mean, I think the change in sensibilities, the sort of rejection of these really awful punishments came first, and the rest of it was rationale. Right. I mean, as far as, right. you know, that's, that's my historical opinion. I don't no, I know. I think that's a good point. Yeah, that they just could not stand it anymore. They thought these things were barbaric, and they wanted to see them done away with, so they needed to invent reasons, and this util- utilitarian model kind of grew out of that. But one of the things you point out in the book is that, you know, you have to uh, judge a utilitarian model by the degree to which it is uh, useful, and it, it turns out that the utilitarian model of punishment is, like, full of holes. Yeah. It doesn't do what they want it to do. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't really work. And so in the end, you know, I think it's Steven Pinker I point out, he talks about the deterrence paradox. You know, even when we know it doesn't deter, we still go ahead and do it. Why? 
right? If we're actually saying, based on the enlightened philosophers, punishment has to have a value, and if we can't find the value, why do we go through with it? And maybe one of the things I say in the book is because in our hearts, we're really all retributivists. Mm-hmm. You know, in our hearts, we know that you, that guy deserves it. He mm-hmm. deserves it. And that we, even though we can come up with all this utilitarian finery, really cool-looking arguments, but in the end, when we see that there's the failure of these consequentialist uh, uh, intentions or ambitions, and that we don't really think that we're going to get any value out of them, we still do it. And there must, there's only one reason, because in the end, we think he deserves it. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a system of very good prisons, so we can take those people and store them someplace so they won't be a harm to us. That really helps. Yeah, and that, by the way, you're quite right. I mean, that's, that, that you know, ended up becoming you know, another business of the state. Yeah, right. That's... It became caretakers of prisons, and that way you didn't have to worry so much about, uh, uh, about dealing with punishments if you can just put people who will lock them up. Right, and, and one of the things you point out in the book is it sort of makes us all hypocrites because we're willing to mouth these arguments about um, utilitarian punishment or reform, I guess as it's called, but we're not really reforming anyone. No. And in fact, we're and punishing they, people in prison right. by sending and, them to prison. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and we're still doing and we're still punishing them. Yeah. <laughs> and if we, if we were really serious about what we said, if we couldn't come up with a net benefit, we wouldn't do it at all. Right. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about the overall cost to society, you know, in maintaining prisons, you know, uh, it's a huge cost. And we undertake it knowing that the, the, the underlying rationale doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the net benefit now is we can feel good about ourselves. Well, if you see we what feel I mean. good about I mean, ourselves, you know. a certain moral purity, yeah. especially for, uh, for those of us who just don't believe in the, ca- in the death penalty. Yeah. You know, just don't let me say that I believe in the death penalty. Yeah, right. <laughs> people do anything. I'll yeah. pay more tax dollars. But please don't kill people under our watch. Yeah. That I don't want to do, and I'm prepared to pay a lot more money to imprison people for you know 75 years or 80 mm-hmm. years or 60 years, for however long it takes. But but don't put me in a position where what we go back to is a different primitive past where we simply eliminated the people that we didn't want around anymore. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's all. That's all. I think that's all true. So, you know, I'm a, we have the system we have. Uh, is there any way to bring retribution or revenge back into it in a sensible or effective way? Well, I, I discuss in the book the concept of simulated revenge or vicarious revenge, where the legal system plays the role of venue provider, but that the victims participate in the delivery of justice. They are full partners in justice. So there's a debt to the state, there's the debt to the victim. The victim has his own attorney. He, too, makes arguments before the court. The victim gets to, you know, speak in court, not just as a witness on behalf of the state, but as somebody who's bringing his or her own charges, prosecuting the crime on her behalf as well. Uh, these are very controversial ideas, but, you know, one of the things I say in the book is since 96% of all cases are discounted by way of plea bargains, that means that, 90%, that 96% of all criminals, to the extent that we got the right guy, is being underpunished, and the victim would never approve of that if they were able to if they were able to veto it they would um, and so what we do here is you know we completely ignore the wishes of the victim, treat them as sort of trivialized witnesses on behalf of the state, and what what we could do instead is make them full partners, 
Yes, it would take longer. Yes, we need more courtrooms. We need much more humanized judges. But if we don't want people taking justice into their own hands, and we don't want self-help, and we don't want people walking around kicking the cat because they claim there's no justice in the world, we have to give them an opportunity in return for their tax dollars to be able to make their case before the court. And when it comes to punishing, the, the, victim, the victim should be not involved just in a victim impact statement, but actually a player in the punishment. The judge can turn to the victim and say, look, what do you think we should do? I may not agree with you, I'm the judge, but what, would you think I, what do you think is the appropriate punishment in this case? Now, by the way, this is heresy. You know, no lawyer or law professor can say stuff like this. But you know, in a victim-centered uh, justice system, we would say exactly this. Mm-hmm. So, um, I guess the question, well, one, one observation, and the observation is, I don't think most people realize the extent to which when you are the victim of a crime and the state takes over the, uh, um, takes over prosecution, uh, that you are actually sidelined. Yeah, people, I mean, you know, it's state versus judge. Yeah, exactly. It's state, and I don't think people really realize what that means. Yeah, no, and I pointed this out in that earlier book, The Myth of Moral Justice, how morally repugnant this is. You know, the, the, here's the fiction, Marshall. It's uh, a woman gets raped, and the case becomes People versus Jones. Jones is the accused rapist. The victim is the witness on behalf of the state that the state right. got raped, and the victim happened to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and that, you want to know one of the, here's among, among the many reasons why rape victims don't want to come forward. It's dehumanizing, it's trivializing, you know, it becomes really about her sexual history. It becomes merely about the word a consent, and so therefore it becomes a battle of consent. Instead of saying, "Look, you know, we're here to uh, to judge and punish on your behalf." Mm-hmm. That's why we're here. We're not here. And one of the things I say in the book that I know will infuriate people is, you know, we have a system that's set up entirely for the rights of the accused. It's never really about the rights of the victim. It has not, there's no play for the rights of the victim in our system. The Constitution is set up entirely to protect the rights of the accused. Mm-hmm. And so it's all set up as to even the presumption of innocence. By the way, if you carry out, if you, if you carry the logic of the presumption of innocence, if the, vic, if the defendant is presumptively innocent, then the complaining party is presumptively lying. Mm-hmm. You yeah, just right. have to make that leap. Now, yes, the prosecution can overturn that presumption, right, in order to can get a conviction. But the way it starts out, by the way, Europeans don't do that. This is what we do. And so, yes, the victim is completely trivialized and marginalized. There are courtrooms in this country, Marshall, where judges say to the victims, you can't sit in the front row because you're crying, mm-hmm. and crying will prejudice the jury against the defendant. Mm-hmm. So go sit in the back. I mean, this is such an interesting conceit, and it's so abstract, the notion that when you know, your daughter gets raped, it's in fact the state yes. that has borne the harm. But, yes, it, but it's the not state. the state, it's your daughter. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's, it, like, it's crazy making. Yeah, it is kind you of want, crazy. You want to know why people have no faith in the legal system? There's one way. Yeah, that is, that is, yeah. that is a bit too abstract for most people. It's even, you know, I, it's a bit too abstract for me. I mean, I've never been in such a situation, but I can imagine. Thank God. But yeah, exactly. And, Thank and, God. I can, no, imagine. it's a very dehumanizing, very deflating, not ennobling place to be, you know, to know that your the state is not acting on your behalf. You're not going to, they're not seeking to avenge you. And that is a very important, we've, you know, the ancient people, biblical people, everyone knew 
that this was this was a critical component of it, the moral and emotional need for closure and for satisfaction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So essentially what you're saying is that one of the things we think of as advancement or uh, civilization in its advanced form, in fact, isn't very advanced. It's kind of sick. I think it's twisted, yeah. right. I mean, yeah. it's what, what passes for civilized life in terms of, if you, if you compare it to the way the ancients would see it, they would say this is just creepy and twisted. Yeah, I think they're There's right. nothing civilized about, you know, moral cowardice. Yeah. There's nothing civilized about letting unpunished people go free. Mm-hmm. Wrongdoers. Mm-hmm. There's nothing civilized. You, you can say whatever you want, but it's not, if you really in, in, analyze it under any rational moral criteria, there's nothing really to be proud of. Mm-hmm. You know, even I say in the book, you know, this nonsense about it's better for 10 guilty people to go free than one innocent person to be punished. Really? Yeah. 10 to 1? I mean, would people repeat this like lemmings, like carrots? But it's idiotic. You know, it's idiotic. Yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. It's idiotic to say it's not two to one, not three to one, not four to one, not five ten to one, one yeah. and ten to one. Ten criminals should go free. They're both equ- equally morally despicable. Yeah, but clearly ten to one. Right, so we but I mean, actually it, accept that. The kind of interesting thing is, even by the utilitarian standard, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it just makes no sense at all. How are we because, better off? How yeah. are we all better off yeah. for 10 criminals yeah. running free? It doesn't make any sense at all. So uh, I want to ask you this. It's a practical question, and it involves a kind of a thought experiment. And that is, So let's imagine we did have a system in which the victim was front and center, uh, and there were people, they were attorneys, very different than attorneys today, that represented those people particularly before the court, and they had this, uh, you know, the, the court provided a venue for them to... Uh, for them to uh, explain how they were harmed and then uh, to uh, have a kind of trial. Now, let's say, for instance, that um, the, uh, the the verdict of the court was that the person was, in fact, guilty, that, that, that they had acted wrongly or against the law, and that the person uh, had some right to composition, that is, they could be satisfied in some way by revenge. And one of the things you point out in the book is that, really, for this to work, uh, you have to be very careful not to overstep the bounds of revenge. And what I'm interested in is how would the judges decide in particular cases what an appropriate kind of revenge was? Well, you mean if the victim was given a chance to provide his yeah. or her remedy? Yeah, right. The victim would have some input, but then the judge has to decide. Look, uh, you know, you know I, I hate to invoke Iran as a model of anything, but this is one area that they do it right. The victim basically at the end is sitting with the judge. The judge turns to the victim and says, what do you think we should do? And the judge's job, by the way, and I think that, you know, I don't think this is asking judges too much. It's, it's to perform the same kind of exactitude to say, here's what I believe would be fair. You know, they know in their mind what's the appropriate eye for an eye. I'm willing to listen to the victim, uh, but if he or she is, is asking for an expansion of what is on, uh, uh, of the of the talionic principle of measure for measure, mm-hmm. I'm going to tell them flat out, I we can't do that. That is disproportionate, and my job is to play the role of measurement chief to come measure for measure. And that's why I'm saying I don't think this is so difficult. The ancient people did this, and they didn't go to law school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know, you know, judges purportedly supposed to be smart people. If they're so smart, prove it. Yeah, yeah. You know, be the smart judge. Say, look, I'm willing to hear you out. Uh, but in the end of the day, it's my job on behalf of the state to mete out the punishment that's most appropriate, given the moral blameworthiness here. Uh, and I don't, I don't, you know, and they, they see what well, it, it's not to me so tricky. 
I think it's worse that what we do now is we have sentencing guidelines right. that take so many of the decisions out of the hands of the judges. Mm-hmm. We should give them actually the authority, the discretion. We just need better judges and for them to really be operating more on an Italianic principle of an eye for an eye to say, let's be creative. Mm-hmm. What's the most creative thing I can do? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, if, I'm, if I'm not incorrect, in civil procedure, there actually is a moment where um, an additional punishment, usually monetary, can be imposed. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know much about punitive, it. But I, the world of, go ahead. Yeah, the world, of, the world of punitive damages. Yeah, exactly. Where, um, yeah. You know, uh, uh, yeah, and, and that's its purpose. But it, by the way, but that too is often done because it's done by society to send a message. Yeah. It's not entirely on the victim's behalf. Yeah. So again, yeah. it just kind of, you know, proves once again where, what the heart is, you know, where, where, where our head is at, um, you know, because we're really not interested in avenging and getting even on behalf of the victims. We just think that the conduct in evaluating the conduct of the defendant is so egregious, so heinous, that an extra bump is required mm-hmm. or, or appropriate. Mm-hmm. Now, would this sort of system include corporal punishments of various kinds? So, you know, literally an eye for an eye. So somebody pokes somebody's eye out, and then the judge says, well, we're going to have to poke your eye out. You know, uh, there's an anecdote in the book. Um, uh, uh, essentially, uh, uh, by the way, from Iran, where a, uh, 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 two stu- college students in the University of Tehran, uh, a guy asked out a girl. The girl didn't want to go out on a date. Uh, I think he asked again. She refused again. The next day, shows up with acid, throws it in her face, mm-hmm. disfigures and blinds her. Uh, they go through a criminal trial. He's guilty. There's no question. You know, he did this. There are witnesses all over campus. Uh, and the woman, the judge turns to the woman. She goes, you know, I think he should be blinded. You know, I'm blinded. Why should he not be blinded? And the judge, of course, agreed and ordered that it would be done in a hospital where acid would be poured into, you know, a drop of acid into his fa- eyes to blind him. Mm-hmm. Now, in the end, they didn't go through with it for many reasons. But, yeah, that's, that's, that would be possible. Now, you could say, well, that's just so barbaric. Yeah, if you haven't had been blinded by acid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. you, know, yeah. you know, or I'll say, I'll get, your daughter hadn't been. You know, people are so smug about what's barbaric. Mm-hmm. You know, but if, was, you know, God forbid one of your children... You know, someone didn't want to, you know, she didn't want to date him and, you know, acid, you know, was disfigured and blinded from that. You know, why not? Why not just say, look, is this is what the victim needs to feel avenged. This is something that we think is appropriate. Mm-hmm. Now, then that particular scenario raises another question. Imagine they did do this and they blinded this fellow. Uh, and then the um, fellow's relatives decided that the judge really, you know, that this was too much. It wasn't, right. according to the community, said that the judge needed to pay because he had yeah. blinded. Yeah, and so then we have the beginning of a cycle. What happens then? Well, look, we, we like to focus on the Hatfields and McCoys, but the reality is there's only one Hatfields and McCoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, this is, yes, there are blood feuds. There are these things happen. And, of course, if the judge was being punished, again, improperly for that, then the, that family needs to be punished in return, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, but I don't think, you know, the fact that that ignites one family to not accept the verdict is not a reason to punish at the outset. Mm-hmm. But, I, to, but, to, but to be in fear of blood feuds is ridiculous because it's just simply sure. not what's happened around the planet. 
we have there have been feuding societies, but we're all here. And despite what Gandhi said, we're all still seeing. Mm-hmm. Is there any way to make a utilitarian argument for this? In other words, for example, a utilitarian might say who was in favor of your position. Well, what we see in these studies of the places where they do this is a drop in crime. Uh, is there any I such data? Or any, like yeah. I think that there isn't any doubt that there's, you know, you know, <laughs> the best way to stop crime is to punish people appropriately and to take them off the streets. It's just it's there. There's nothing that works better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so you could make that utilitarian argument, um, but you know, uh, that's different, right? That's the world. That's the utility of incapacitation. Even the utilitarians agree with that, right? So when I laid out deterrence, rehabilitation, incapacitation, right? Even the utilitarians know that there's value to that, mm-hmm. but they're looking for much bigger value than just that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, what about the notion that? Being involved in these sorts of punishments um, damages us somehow spiritually, if you see what I mean. Sort of, it, it's um, it, it is it makes us coarse. Uh, I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I I believe what bother what damages us spiritually is to live in a society that refuses to properly punish those people who've committed wrongs. That's the greatest damage. That's the lesson of Oedipus Rex. Mm-hmm. The moral foundations uh, of society, of Thebes, crumbles because of an unpunished crime. Mm-hmm. And we forget, this is 500 years before Christ. You know, when I teach this stuff in law and literature, I mean, I always say, look, this is 500 years before Christ that Sophocles gave us the power, the imperative that comes from making sure that justice is done, that unpunished people are punished, that we don't bury the uh, 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 the past and pretend that a crime didn't take place. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't we don't ignore that truth um, because it'll come back as a pathology, is worse. Mm-hmm. But when for those people who say what you say, I say, well, I don't. I, we are not served well by un, uh, by underpunishing or unpunishing. Mm-hmm. That that has not served us morally. We're not spiritually worse off by making sure that the people get what they deserve. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I see. So how has, I know the book is newly published, but uh, how has the book been received and how have you been received when you've talked about the book in various fora? Well, it's the book is officially published as of today, but it's already been out for a month. So I've Mm -hmm. appeared on a number of NPR shows and I was on BBC and asked to write a number of essays for major magazines. And you're still standing, so... <laughs> I'm still standing, but I have to tell you that the drumbeat is pretty heavy. Yeah. You know, people, people are very passionate about this. You can't say the word revenge. Mm-hmm. You know, they just simply shout you down. Uh, there's been very few people on these talk show, radio shows, come and are supportive. They simply just think, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to them... By the way, you know, and and many people who call are lawyers or judges, and they're invested in the system, so they don't like the idea that the system's being criticized. Mm -hmm. They're saying, I mean, you get lawyers and judges calling on these NPR shows telling you how how great the system is. The problem is no one asks the victims. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why there are these victim groups. You know why? They're not happy. Mm -hmm. They felt, felt, you know, poorly treated under the law, and they felt unavenged, and they Mm -hmm. need to have a way to speak to their loss. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I find that very compelling. I know people who've been victims of crime, and they are not particularly satisfied with what happened. The, the, yeah. the experience, the American experience of this is, a, is, is, um, is very alienating, uh, because yeah. the state takes over immediately, and it, it, yeah, it, it does have a kind of, um, it's dispiriting yeah. to watch and, and to be yeah. with them. Yeah. yeah, the only people who are happy are the lawyers and the judges. Yeah. They're the only ones who walk around smugly saying, what a great country this is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess one thing is that that we have this sort of general notion that justice should be um, dispassionate, that it should be dispassionate. I guess be dispassionate. And you don't think that's true? No, I don't. Yeah, that's, I that really people, gets to it. I think right there. No, yeah. absolutely not. I think people come to the courts at their most emotionally vulnerable. Nobody wants to come to a lawyer right. or a prosecutor. They've been somehow violated in some very severe way, and to turn them into robots is emotionally, intellectually, you know, dishonest. Mm-hmm. To tell them that you can't cry, that you can't express yourself, that you can't, you know, it's, it's complex. Again, it's beli- the ancient Greeks understood this. You know, the Oresteia, the, the story of Orestes, you know, I mean, I talk about this whole idea, but, you know, the, the ancient Greeks, uh, Aeschylus basically ends the Oresteia trilogy with the understanding that when they conduct a trial against Orestes for having killed his mother, uh, and he's a, essentially acqu- acquitted. The outcome is that uh, 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 the goddess Athena says to the Furies, "Don't go off into the world and create a poison. From now on, you should be part of all the trials. Bring the emotion, rage. Bring all what all the Furies represent. Come into the courtroom and be part of the process." Aeschylus understood this. Mm-hmm. The courtrooms should be places that are essentially uh, venues for very vulnerable, emotionally torn apart people. Mm-hmm. And to treat, uh, to treat uh, courtrooms like they're laboratories, uh, where they, they're so sanitary that you can't touch anything, is just intellectually and emotionally dishonest. And it, and it creates no closure. It creates no opportunity for people to feel heard in a courtroom. Yeah. I know that one of the, when I, you know, the, the little... Um, experience that I have with a lot, and it's really very little, is that um, one of the things that's the sort of crazy making to me is the sort of pseudo technicality of it. That they they really want to make it like you know there's some sort of empirical science, and there are these rules, and they're you know they're applied and dispassionately yeah. applied, and you sort of crank, and then you get this result. Yeah, but it just oh, ain't like that. At all. <laughs> the, it's the, you know the, the assembly line justice. It's just a matter of putting some widgets together. Yeah. These are human beings, yeah. and whenever you're dealing with human beings, you're dealing with a great deal of emotional complexity. Yeah. The legal system needs to be a place that can welcome that as well. Yeah, no, that's right. Let me. Uh, um, I, I guess I'm just curious. This seems like it was a huge blind spot that we really are all. Hypocrites. Has anyone before you, did you have an inspiration in writing a book? Is, is there a vast uh, literature in, in law school journals about, you know, how revenge really has been given it short shrift? It never comes up. <laughs> it never comes up because it's seen as the, the opposite of what the law is supposed to achieve, right? right? The law is yeah. supposed to be cool, dispassionate, unemotional, uh, clinical, uh, legalistic, mechanical, Robotic, you know, this is the you know the world of let the legal system assign an index number and let it like you know Kafka's the trial or right. Dickens, Dickens the Blue Bleak House, let it work its way through the courts in a very bureaucratic administrative way. Yeah, uh, and revenge is all about the motions, you know, emotions at the core, at the forefront. You know, remember there's that famous line in the movie The Princess Bride 
where the manager yeah. says, you know, he spends his whole life learning to, you know, work the sword, uh, become a swordsman, so he can confront the person who killed his father. He says, you know, hello, my name is Ingo Montoya, mm-hmm. who killed my father, prepared to die. Mm-hmm. That's very powerful. That, so that movie got it right. The victim needs to stand face to face. This is what you did to me. And this is what needs to happen for me to go back out into this world and function like a person whose balance has been restored. Mm-hmm. But we don't, there's nothing in the law journals that say that. There's no law review article about the need to make sure that there's a little Ingo Montoya in all of us, and we have to have to have that speech before we can go back into the world. There's no law professor that yeah, ever right. said that. Yeah. It's, so, it's, so fun, it's so interesting and enlightening for me because I have kind of a list of things that will be thought barbaric in 200 years. Uh, and I know that they, there are such things around today because they've always existed in history. You know, for example, you know, uh, honestly speaking, Abraham Lincoln really did not think that blacks were equals to, to whites, and right. Margaret Sanger really did think that we should cull right. the population. There's no doubt right. about it. Right. They were right on a lot of things. They were totally wrong on those issues. Right. I, th- I think this may be one of them. You know, we'll look I back in 200 so. years and just say, they just really treated these victims horribly. Yeah, I hope. I hope that I don't. I don't have. I'm not sanguine about it. Yeah, I'm not, I, mean, I just think the law business is a serious business, and it's very defensive about its methods. And I'm a living proof of you know this is that I'm not. I'm I'm a very much a persona non grata yeah. because I'm pointing out things that you're not allowed. You're not allowed to say. Right. Well, you're welcome at my dinner table anytime. You're very kind, Marshall. Right. We, we we don't eat very well, though. Actually, <laughs> yeah, the kids get to decide what we eat. But anyway, uh, I want to ask you our traditional final question, Thane. This has been a great interview. What are you working on now? I'm working on a an, a, a new novel, and then I'm working on a book about the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. Well, that's terrific. I hope that I hope we get to talk again, whatever it's about. I really did because I really enjoyed our conversation today. We've Same been talking here. with uh, Thane Rosenbaum about his book Payback: The Case for Revenge, and a good case it is. I want to thank everybody for listening to the New Books Network today, and I especially want to thank Thane for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Marshall. Very grateful. Okay. Bye bye. Bye bye.